0: Hello, good morning, uh, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining us for this Supply Frame Executive Insights uh, Live Virtual Roundtable. I'm Richard Barnett, the Chief Marketing Officer at Supply Frame, and I'm very honored to have three distinguished guests join us to discuss 2021 outlook for the global electronics value chain. Uh, first off, we have Joe McBeth, uh, Supply Chain Leader at Jabil. Joe, please introduce yourself and your background uh, to, uh, to our audience today.
1: Thank you Richard. Um, Joe Macbeth, I've been at Jabil for 27 years. I started in manufacturing, uh, spent most of my time in supply chain, ran a business for a period of time, and now I'm responsible for what we call Jabil regulated industries, which includes healthcare, automotive and transportation, and defense and aerospace. So thank you for having me today.
0: Thank you, Joe. Uh, I also have uh, David Paulson, who uh, is leading Avnet's Velocity and United uh, organization and uh, it's a pleasure to have you, David, uh, here on our uh, on our panel discussion. Can you tell a little bit more about your your background for our audience?
2: Sure. Thanks, Richard, and thanks for having uh, me on today. Uh, I've been with Abbott 26 years. Uh, I started in the Minneapolis market as an account manager, calling on customers. Uh, did that for a number of years, and then moved into our uh, supplier support. Uh, Group, both on a regional level as well as a global uh, level, and then roughly eleven years ago, uh, I joined the Abnet Velocity Group, which is the global supply chain innovation arm of Abnet. Um, and more recently, uh, part and parcel with that, I've also I also have responsibility for our global strategic accounts under our Abnet United Group. So again, Richard, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to today.
0: That's great to have you, uh, David. I mean, your your experience, like Joe's, you know, twenty. 20- X plus years, you know, and seeing, you know, kind of the all signs of, you know, the AdNet, uh ecosystem and looking where points of innovation are occurring. With your largest strategic accounts, but also sensitive to changes in the supply market is, is super valuable. Um, and then Douglas uh, Kent, uh, managing partner at Chainovation. Uh, great to have you join us as well. Douglas, maybe you could you know, share some highlights from your distinguished career.
3: Yeah, well, the guys only mentioned the 20 plus years because I've known them that long and they wanted to make me feel older. So that was the reason for that. Had the luxury of working with both of them. So yes, as you mentioned, Managing Partner chain innovation. it's a, it's a specialty a supply chain consultancy partnered with uh, the Association of Supply Chain Management, primarily focused on driving um, supply chain transformation at companies. Um, in addition to that, I do some work, uh, obviously from an adjunct faculty standpoint um, 21 years now, and I teach in the Masters of Digital Transformation program as well.
0: Fantastic. Such a broad range of of experience. And, and again, like like Joe and David, you have this long view. So one of the things that we're trying to tap into is, you know, what's new and different about this cycle that we're in? And, and where is the market, you know, beginning to innovate? Or what are those insights and recommendations for key leaders? Um, because sometimes I feel like it's, you know, patterns that we've seen before, you know, and it's Groundhog's Day, you know, because we've all been talking about some of the similar topics, but boy, 2020 was not, you know, an average year by any means. And uh, and so it's kind of interesting to see the mix of that, you know what I mean? Where do we think there's some really new uh, areas of opportunity for innovation? And then, you know, uh, maybe, you know, we, we forget our memory, you know, when we go through a, you know, a ma- major uh, down supply constrained environment and we come back, you know, again, uh, you know, there, there's a shifting landscape uh, of dynamics across the, the value chain and we want to understand and see some maybe some early, early signs of how that overall is shifting um, within the um, global electronics value chain in 2021. Um, So, you know, I wanted to just kind of call out based on, you know, work and research and analyst reports, both from, you know, Jabil, our own supply-frame DSI network, just a few interesting sort of early observations around what we're seeing happen uh, in key commodity groups within electronics. So, you know, in general, COVID-19, the pandemic, I think had a broad impact around both Uh, shifting the demand mix significantly. So there was areas of massive explosion of demand in areas that were uh, maybe unexpected. I mean, we obviously saw that in work from home and the general kind of consumer to home tech, you know, and digital services uh, needs exploding, but then also uh, obviously related specifically to healthcare Uh, You know, there's a lot of focus around where there was massive constraints around, you know, PPE and ventilator equipment. But then across the board, we saw automotive go through a major uh, transition as well. And so we're kind of just beginning to see a transition either to a new normal or a new improved outlook as we're seeing a little bit more of potential recovery, maybe a, um, uh, you know, light at the end of the tunnel, so to speak, with with respect to vaccines and, and potentially the ability to get to a new normal Um, One of the areas that we're seeing is um, significant lead times around, uh, you know, sensors that go into, you know, multiple different downstream products and applications uh, in memory. And we're seeing, you know, the, um, the, the, uh, you know, 30 plus weeks uh, of lead time extension for long, long long-term lead time. Uh, Also seeing just in general within passives, uh, you know, resistors and even, you know, ceramic capacitors, a significant shift around, capacity utilization and then, and then potentially what's happening in the downstream market demand, which is very different for uh, similar sets of passive commodities. So, you know, with 5G, you know, it's, it's something like 40 to 60% of average utilization of passives within the same handset device because of it's a 5G format or we're seeing, you know, explosion of use in, in automotive, um, you know, and, uh, you know, in, in other downstream markets. Uh, and then, you know, one of the things that we've seen, particularly as it relates to this sort of wave of news that's coming out recently around Ford, Toyota, Volkswagen, GM, all in the last two weeks announcing, you know, expected supply shortages, ramp downs in production capacity, is this interesting dynamic that seems to be kind of surfacing fairly quickly around. Uh, you know, ICs and ASICs that are specifically, you know, holding them up in electronic control units. And one of the things that we looked at as a supply frame network was, you know, where we're seeing correlation around that shift. And one of the interesting highlights was just seeing year over year search demand for renaissance and their products for an automotive increasing 35%. Um, We've seen overall a 50% increase in ASIC uh, demand quarter over quarter, which has been the highest in seven quarters and we're seeing interesting kind of audio ICs, which also have that mixed down market demand consumption also increase over two years. So I wanted to pause here for just a second and and, and get a a sense of what you're seeing around kind of at the commodity group level, what transitions, what trends do you you find very interesting that have the biggest potential downstream impact for key uh, industries? you know, Joe. Maybe we could start with with you. You probably have your pulls on some of these key commodity group trends.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's uh, as you said, it's been a wild year. Um, who would have suspected that we would have had, you know, the worst health epidemic we've ever had, a pandemic in our lifespan, and yet the economy would accelerate. Right. Uh, unbelievable. Yeah. So I, you know, what, what we've seen is a combination of things. Early in the year when, when COVID kicked off, um, healthcare was skyrocketing in demand, and ventilators in p- particular, although probably not the answer we thought it would be, was the focus, as well as connected health, you know, trying to keep people out of the hospitals. So technology that was on ventilators is generally pretty old. And those commodities um, were very hard to get because, you know, suppliers don't want to make that anymore. And the demand was hard to fill on connected devices. It falls into the mainstream of technology. And those things that fit into phones and other things that follow the same technology patterns, we could solve the problem with those suppliers and that technology for those things that fit that. When you look at what's going on today, um, automotive, you know, this this automation connected electrification that goes into vehicles today, you think about it, I was thinking about it last night, it's really like we're launching something as large as cell phones, not a cell phone supplier, but cell phones, another second set that big into cars. Mm -hmm. And COVID has accelerated those technologies with very little forecast so everyone knew it was coming that there would be you know these these higher electrified vehicles but they didn't expect it to happen at the rate that it's happening today and so probably the worst thing that we're seeing is semi semi suppliers across the board are way over capacity and an investment in that space as everyone on this call knows isn't quick you know you don't hire some more people and you fix the problem um, you know, now it's going to enlist people engaging in design to solve these problems, because really the semiconductor guys are not going to be able to solve it in a short window for all the, the players that are hurt. That cascades. You know, yeah. there are some impacts because of shared capacity, even in the space of diagnostic, which no one will want to hear, because the diagnostic equipment and the new testers also have semiconductors that are consistent with some of those and been tight. So the demand is really high in semiconductors it's extending in all passives but but quite frankly that's quite easy to fix comparatively mm-hmm. um, and and I don't see uh, you know a short window it's it's common intelligence right now that that's probably the biggest spot as anything with semiconductors
0: right I mean it, it feels like it's almost like a um, you know, a multiplier dynamic that's happening, right? Because we were already kind of an upswing anyway around, you know, semiconductors, as you say, is capital intensive, right? So you can kind of see like when, you know, those waves of capital investments sort of come online and we get, you know, fab commit, you know, for TSMC, for example, you know, get locked in, you kind of have a pretty good, you know, read on what's going to happen. And, and you know, in
1: 20... In, in 20- you hit something yeah. really in TSMC, for example, those that outsourced, you know, Apple is not slowing down. <laughs> right. So when people slowed down their demand in automotive, a blip of time that they said, what is going to happen? We did too. Um, Apple didn't slow down. Right. And that right. capacity got booked. Right. So now there's this, you know, automotive is definitely up from where they were, but are they actually getting what they were getting in the past? Because other industries that share they're this is the whole kind of discussion today is yeah, supply chain doesn't make sense. It's a network and there isn't one chain. Right. They are all connected and right. they're all impacting each other. And there's where this new, you know, the new thoughts of how we use predictive intelligence. Right. Um, right. It's gonna to start to bring more value. But yeah, those that outsourced into if you have that scenario, which, you know, automotive, NXP and others do quite a bit. Um, that's where it's really, really tight.
0: And I totally, Steve. What are you seeing around? Kind of, you know, maybe you have a lens into some key clients, but it, you know, Avnet, like Jable is sitting, you know, across each one of these commodity areas, right? So in a lot of ways, traditionally, you know, distributors have been a buffer for inventory, et cetera. But I think some of the dynamics that we're seeing here way exceed the normal buffering capability, you know, of, of an avnet or any distributor in the market because we're seeing, you know, just significant shifts in both demand and then capacity allocation. What What is your read on some of the early indicators on, you know, key commodity groups uh, that you think are important for 2021?
2: Yeah, I think Joe hit it, you know, the, the you know, and I, I would even dial it back a little bit uh, more historically into the the dynamic between 2018 and 2019. We yeah. had a big year in 2018 that led to a bunch of constraints. Um, uh, then, a, then a down, we had a glut of inventory in 2019, which then led to either a freeze or a halt in uh, manufacturing investment, which rode out through 2019 as everybody burned off their inventory. And then at the end of the year, and I, and I remember this specifically in January is, we started to talk about the, the promise of 5G and what 5G meant to IoT and what IoT meant to, you know, uh, the data center and, and everything in that, in that data chain. And everybody started to get a little bit bullish, right, in that kind of December timeframe. And everybody started to look at, okay, boy, this is, this is a bulb of, of demand that's going to come down. Let's start to reevaluate, you know, what our investment would be or should be. Leading into 2020, and then obviously the world turned upside down, and and that then obviously halted and and contracted any kind of efforts towards uh, any kind of expansion of capacity, uh, if not led to shuttering of capacity while we went through the downturn in certain segments. And Joe hit that too. You know, you, you have your automotive specific you know content, but you know to his point, Apple didn't stop building. So any of these commodities, especially in areas like power semiconductors and and in any of these areas that are cutting across multiple segments, even though some are flat down, if you are in that commodity segment that you're experiencing a V-shape or yeah. you're tied to consumer, you're constrained because, you know, the the investment hasn't occurred to accommodate a V-shape curve in automotive combined with, you know, Apple's continued investment and in, in, in the success of, you know, what's now starting now really to really drive into the 5G launch. and. You know, the, the discussion we have around this is this concept of there's demand, but then there's also perishable demand. And some of that consumer stuff, you know, if you don't hit the, the seasonal market, then that demand goes away. But what has occurred now is that demand that was, you know, in, as an example, for 5G build-outs and everything to accommodate that, is going on top of demand that already existed for 2021. And there just isn't the investment uh, done in 20, you know, coming out of 2018 and 2019 to accommodate that on a broad kind of macro basis. Yeah. So that, that's kind of how I see it from a commodity perspective. And you see it across. I'll throw one more dynamic in there is you know, the ICs it's taking to run a multimedia system in an automobile, you know, they their content inside of them for MLCCs and passive materials has grown 10x so large 5G chips you know contain more ICs than they used to it's not just as simple as a wafer and a substrate and package right now you're getting you know these these components and it's hundreds if not thousands of MLCCs inside of the device and then hundreds and thousands outside of the device to make it run and that's also eating up capacity at an exponential rate yeah I think that
0: focus on MLCCs is so interesting, right, because it was sort of an area that was a bit of a surprise for many large OEMs in 2018. You know, it was sort of a, you know, never really viewed, I think, as, as you know, strategically, let's say, right, from a supply management perspective, um, you know, around the, the shift in demand and capacity. But, but the other story that we saw in 2018 was a, was a supplier capacity strategic allocation shift to certain target priority industries because of either higher reliability or profit margins, you know, moving out of consumer electronics into automotive, for example, um, you know, even though these are piece part items at, you know, very 0.02 cents, you know, per part, you know, but when you see a 10x or an exponential growth in the actual consumption per device or unit, uh, you know, that's a that has a huge impact, right? Both not just for 5G handset and new, you know, sensor usage, but like you said, the car as a mobility device, right, Joe? It's like kind of what you were saying before, you know, that has a massive, you know, exploding uh, cascading effect. Douglas, what do you think are are kind of, you know, what's different about 2021 around these supply constraints versus other, you know, cycles that we've been through before, because we're talking about, you know, memory, uh, you know, the, um, you know, some passives and resistors, and then looking at, um, you know, some of these special ICs, right, and ASICs, and, and right, the, we've seen a lot of, you know, kind of transitional volatility, but this cycle seems to be, 2021 seems to be a little bit of a perfect storm or a combination of newer factors that we haven't quite seen before, it seems like. What is your read on that?
3: I want you to grab that globe, or is that a crystal ball that's sitting behind you there, Richard, because that's, I think, what we're going to need. <laughs> um, I, 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 just playing off, it's not a traditional volatility. That's, that's, the, that's the 2020 message. Um, and a lot of it comes back to the factors that both Joe and, and David have mentioned, and that is, you know, just think about it from the, the holistic treatment of inventory today. It's, it's completely different. Our, our thought processes and the way we're planning and the way we're ordering are completely different now. Um, you know, we, a, a, a component manufacturer by the nature of understanding their customers' demand can almost predict what they're going to need to make. Um, that's just been turned on its head completely. Um, our view of inventory in this world is, is now shifting, right? Because as we move from recovery into designing a supply chain for resiliency our view of inventory has shifted dramatically moving from you know viewing inventory as an as as a liability to now as an as an asset right so you know i heard i heard numbers the other day saying that you know the shift to this model of resiliency in many instances has added 20 days of inventory days of supply for many companies as they rethink their business model they rethink how they want to structure the supply chain to meet this new need of resiliency. So I think our demand picture is so much more complicated. It's no longer that we can actually see, you know, the flow out of goods and then predict what the inventory requirements are going to be because now everybody's shifting what those inventory requirements are. So you're going to need a crystal ball. It's not as easy to for us to predict that demand picture. So I think irrespective of the commodity that's constrained and the criticality of certain components tied to certain industries, yes, some of that is there, but holistically, our view of the market conditions is driving us towards this model of resiliency that's really making it really cloudy to see the pure demand picture.
0: Just two additional uh, dynamics that we see happening, right? One is, is that, you know, we do have this, Dynamic with China, right, that's also shifted into a new gear, right? So we've had, you know, two or three years of kind of super dynamic back and forth on retaliatory tariffs, you know, 5, 10, 25%, back to 10%, you know, on on what, you know, mix of, um, you know, of of industry or commodity groups coming in and out of China, um, you know, Obviously, the the geopolitical dynamic there is still going to be a factor in twenty twenty one with the new administration. Still, in my opinion, very uncertain as to what significantly would change there. But you also see China indicating that um, you know they, there's a there's an, a renewed focus around some form of you know um, uh, you know say industry policy focus on development of semiconductor capacity and, and IP, it's in specific you know lead there. But also the, the domestic demand for Uh, You know, for China's own, you know, electronics value chain, so to speak, is consuming more of the total global aggregate demand, you know, and that dynamic continues to play out, you know, Deutsche Bank has this, um, uh, you know, the tech Cold War index that they're writing about, you know, and their implications over many years would be that, you know, $3.5 trillion of total investment is at risk. In the sense of, you know, on one extreme, if you try to bifurcate the global electronics value chain into East and West or China versus the rest of the world, that would require, you know, massive amounts of shifts of investment, right, over many years, right, to kind of decouple, right. And I don't think that's a reasonable, you know, expectation at all, right. But I'm curious what you guys think about, if any, of the added element of uncertainty around, you know, what's what's happening with with trade policy maybe in, in, in China in general is you know what what is the effect that that's happening uh, right now
1: for for the global and you know it, it's uh, it's an interesting topic and it's and it's and it's not really just China it's how does the global supply chain work today yeah you know I'll give you an example you know when the defense uh, production act was put in play for healthcare you know, everybody who touched it said, this doesn't make any sense. You know, the majority of the things we buy are not from the U.S. Right. And to enact that means it's, you know, it shows you how dated the thought is by those that are in, are probably working on the same things like tariffs. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just such a large uh, China's kind of irreplaceable at this point. Yeah. Um, and so I don't think either anybody can afford for tariffs to be the driving force of how we run our economies. Mm -hmm. And because if you think about it, something new that you made me think of um, moments ago was the economy is very hot and the unemployment rate is very high. You know, it's it's an interesting dynamic where we need to make sure the economy continues to run because we're giving money out too, you know, to those that don't, that need it. So the dynamic is kind of unique in this era just for that, that that whole scenario. So the leverage you think you have in in enacting tariffs, um, nobody can afford. China can't afford for it to slow down. The US can't afford for it to slow down. Um, Sure, there'll be posturing and there will be elements of it, but we just went through those.
2: And nothing's
1: so significant that we couldn't meet demand. I do think there could be some more aggressive steps in the future that would would maybe change some of the security around products um, that could, could force some new, some industries to come back to the US. But I can't imagine that we can get to a point where um, we rebuild what China has already built everywhere in the world to protect for tariffs. Right.
3: And just to, if I can, just to add to Joe's point, I think the other, the other interesting complexity here and, and Joe hit on it is, is just the, the multi-hierarchical nature of a product, right? <laughs> uh, from, from where it's manufactured at the component level, even at the back end of the ingredient level. So I think we can't just, uh, we obviously need to understand the geopolitical impacts like tariffs and other activities which cause disruption in the supply chain. And in many instances may cause us to change the footprint of our supply chain design and other and are manu- in manufacturing points and even storage locations and even today, e- even where intellectual property sits, which has right. a potential tax impact, right? So it can cause us to do that, but but the reality of it is we have to understand the market sensors both on the demand and the supply side, understanding what those sensors might mean to our overall supply chain. Um, but it's not as easy as understanding where. The demand occurs from a consumer perspective, and where the finished good is manufactured. We obviously have to break that down into into multiple tiers and really understand that hierarchy. And that's not, that's a very complex problem. Mm-hmm. So we can't let go of it, Richard. I think that's the key point. Um, and we need that's why you see things like digital twins and etc. happening because we need to get to a multi hierarchical level of understanding of our supply chain to even play out the scenarios of the potential
2: impact. Yeah. And, and I'll just add on to that, Douglas. I mean, it, it, you know, when, when we see this this shift and everything you're, you're talking about, you know, rings, you know, to a bit of resiliency and a bit of agility kind of mixed together And that, you know, the, the manufacturing, to Joe's point, you know, we, the, the, the world can't survive without China, but parts of the world can. And so, you know, we, we need to be prepared to follow how that manifests itself because sometimes the resiliency will say, well, I can't build solely in China anymore, so I'm going to set up shop in Thailand or I'm going to set up shop in Vietnam or Malaysia. And and to your point, we need to be prepared to, to embrace that and accommodate it. Otherwise, the supply chain is going to break,
1: right? Yeah, David, I think you're spot on. If I could just add a little to that. You know, people talk about the word resiliency. It's probably like partner used to be. We say it yeah, so right. much. What does it really mean? Um, but I look at it and I think, uh, we've already, we started to, to try to look at how we put uh, multiple, eliminated the single points of failure in our supply chains. You can't do that in a lot of cases. And some of the, the, the industries that are really struggling right now have single source many things that could be dual sourced creating an extended problem. But I think what you'll see is, is geography come into play where you start to look at your footprint in supply chain and say how do i how do I solve semiconductors, electronics those things is one way, but how do I solve the second part of that with mechanical parts uh, connectors, um, everything to do with that and in reality, in our case, it even goes to you know the assembly really is what people are confused and they say. I want to, you know, I want to onshore my product and I go, you want to onshore assembly. Right. Because you're surely not going to onshore to anything else. Right. It's, it's far too expensive. I'll give you a price for that. You don't have it. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're going to see people start to say, how do I use my footprint differently? And how do I approve other footprints? Like in regulated industries, you know, there's an expense and a time required to approve different things. That has to be done like insurance.
0: Yeah, It can't
1: be done after because if I start today to solve the problem that happened today, I'm going to be fixed in two years. And that's, you know, that yeah. doesn't work. And so it's, it's, so you're it's about using intelligence differently.
0: What you're raising and what we've all kind of just drifted into is that, you know, there, there is this almost, uh, you know, sort of new approach, new paradigm that we need to kind of shift into that we've been talking about for a long time, but I'm really curious about sort of, you know, wh- you know why is now the moment, you know what I mean? To shift some of these, some, some of these more embedded, deeply embedded, uh, you know, incentive management structures, you know, mindset, you know, uh, organizational dynamics, you know, I mean, you know, going to lowest cost every time, right? And not looking in a balanced way yeah. around value and profitability, like, what is the risk premium that's that's acceptable for resiliency that finance can actually model, you know, into the cost of the products, et cetera. That's usually what I found with a lot of our customers is that it's, it's, it's very immature. You can talk about it theoretically, but actually building out, you know, look at the weighted average cost difference across multi-sourcing across three suppliers for an equivalent, uh, you know, component is a way to derive a risk premium. And there's there's much more elaborate, you know, simulations you can start developing, looking at alternate costs of final assembly, you know, the total landed logistics cost, you know, based on different, you know, network routes. I mean, it gets, it can get very sophisticated, but the level of trade-off analysis that most companies, I believe, are operating at in global OEMs, you know, I don't think we're there yet. What do you guys think? Douglas, I know you, you've spent a lot of time, you know, on this specific topic, uh, you know, in the last few years.
3: I think I think you 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 said it well, Richard, and that is 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 we can't just chase costs, right? If we use Joe's example, which I thought was a perfect parallel, right? what have we learned? A decade ago, we were making manufacturing footprint shifts to chase low country cost of labor. What did that do for us? right? Not a heck of a lot, right? right. I mean, yeah, we did get some advantage. But I think what we're saying with the resiliency shift, and I do think it's overused, but the reality of it is, how, how quickly can we chase the opportunity to create revenue? That really should be the push. And, and the, the analytics underlying that, the ability to run scenarios, the ability to get out of our own way, to, to, to not use the linear processes that we're stuck with today to make those decisions are critical to that resiliency model. Right. We can pick up, lift and shift a manufacturing footprint, and that's a very linear process. How we take that decision, when we take that decision, the physical aspects of making the movement just to chase a low labor cost. Today's world doesn't allow for that. Right. We can't keep doing that same mistake because we're trying to chase every element of cost we need to put it in a different paradigm we need to think about it differently we need to re- we need to understand and remove the barriers for making resiliency happen and that's 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 policy it's process it's organization it's 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 really challenging the way we think and the way in which we enable decision making to happen in the organization and there's zero doubt that can be done in a normal way that we used to do it in a linear a bureaucratic way, we've got to have the underlying analytics to assist in that and enable that decision making to happen. And we yeah. need to do it. Yeah.
0: So so just building on that, Douglas, you know, one of the things that we're we've you know, we did a study earlier this year. It's something that we're seeing a lot across a lot of our customers is because we have kind of this view of the design cycle all the way through sourcing and then supply chain. And one of the, the critical coupling points is the decision-making that's happening at the point of design, right? And in too many, uh, you know, process environments for new product introduction, in, uh, there's a pattern here, obviously, go you know, in regulated industries, particularly medtech, in right, where you have this design in, you know, sort of uh, engineering sort of decision authority domain, right, that can lock in single sources of supply and lock in risk and cost for the life cycle of that product. Uh, and and the levels of collaboration that are occurring in the NPI phase across engineering, supply chain, finance, and very importantly, partners, right? Because this is an ecosystem dynamic, right? That seems to be a a fulcrum point for really addressing a lot of these issues. Because Douglas, to your point, you've got siloed organizations. They're all chasing local kind of local optima, you know, local incentives for, you know, chasing cost or completing a sourcing event. But the global picture is, you know, we, we don't have high resiliency or we're exposed to, you know, broader market demand volatility, or, or we're going to lose because of chase lowest cost in a sourcing event. And we haven't done multi-source and we don't have locked in capacity and we don't have upside flexibility. So we're going to get, you know, hurt in a major market correction or vaults, a shift in demand, which I think is kind of what's going on right now in the market. I mean, David, do, do you see it happening? And, you know, cause you guys have done a lot of, Innovation with your clients around thinking through the whole product life cycle as well.
2: Yeah, I mean we we've we've invested a lot in the past five years on that front end of the process, whether it's acquisition of communities, the the acquisition of Farnell was really you yeah. know our acknowledgement of that issue that you're seeing as a broadline distributor that we are and really trying to push our way into um, that value chain right to to create this kind of end to end flow and it's a journey but this idea that says you know hey you know the 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 rogue engineer you know roaming google for an a to d converter you know hey hey hold on you know here here's a here's a community and here's a a, a sample mechanism and an npi mechanism to to keep that you know, in a flow that says, okay, if you bought this, maybe you should take a look at this or take a look at this as well. And all of that, you right. know, providing that to, to that, to that individual. So they have it at their fingertips. And I think following that then all the way through the rest of the supply chain is obviously the utopian state. And and I think to varying degrees, we're all kind of chasing that, that, that journey. Um, but it's important. And, and you talked a little bit about about regulated industries and what it's going to take if one of these, uh, uh, a supplier or two or whoever, you know, EOL's a product, you know, that's, that, that causes a lot of work that potentially could have been mitigated on the front end with, you know, a little bit more of an eye on, to your point of the resiliency of that design and the multi-sourcing that associates uh, or is associated with that.
1: So. I I would add a little bit to that because we've invested massively in this space too because the regulated industries are going through transformation that other industries aren't. Um, Automotive has kind of led that. They they have, I think, a great answer for dealing with technology and it starts with a modular design. The approach, they've made the assumption that they will have to change. Whereas if you look at defense and aerospace and healthcare, they talk about getting connected once. That's a rep- recipe for disaster because you don't get connected once. That technology is going to keep changing. So if your plan was that I would build a new design, I would launch it and the product would have you know, 11 years of life and my technology will have two years of life, then I haven't planned very well for that product. So. We're marrying product lifecycle with component lifecycle, and now we're, we're beginning to build out our own data set and, and invite our suppliers in to share as well to show how long will that connected device last. I don't actually need to know the next one. I need to know <laughs> when I have to start my design for the next product because it takes longer to design a cell phone. You know, Every year, they're doing a new one. Uh, you're not going to the therapy in healthcare doesn't change the technology around the therapy changes, and so you have to predict. So you're planning the product, the budget, and the launches of your products. Secondly, they haven't really adopted a modular approach yet. So the cost of doing design to keep pace is uh, much more expensive than it needs to be. And lastly, probably the biggest problem is is something. You know, everyone knows years to end of life, but we we have a term we call years to end of competitive life. And it's not cost. It's you could probably buy that device, but that device is five times slower than this device. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: In the past, these regulated industries might not have cared. You know, oh yeah, it's a little bit slower. Who cares? Because it wasn't technology that was selling the product, but it is today. Right. Watch TV and see how many ads you see for Abbott and dexcom and their products that are it's a consume diabetes it's a consumer product yeah and figured out that if i listen you know I, i can drive to make change around my product through the actual user which happens to be not the person who prescribes it yeah it's you and me so these industries are now being affected by consumerization they're using consumer products and their culture is very conservative, not set up to do that. Now I would say automotive, they learned this in the past and they have a better answer. They have people who understand that change and they built their, you know, you get a, my, uh, my 2019 truck has very different technology than my 14 truck. And I just looked at a new 21 and it's already different. Right. And right. so how does a, how does a vehicle, that used to have a six-year life cycle be fresh every year, it's modular and it's through intelligence. It's knowing what technology will be, even though the core of it is not technology, it is what sells a truck. Same with a plane and same with therapy now.
3: Yeah, I, and maybe just a highlight on, so first of all, Joe's got a truck, so we know. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think it's a, it's a very interesting conundrum because what Joe said I think is, is spot on, and that is that you know technology tends to lead the pack. And so we wanna, have, we wanna have that conversation about how quickly we can take that technology, get it into a product and push it through to create revenue. But that's a, it's a conundrum because I would argue to say, yeah, as equally as important as that is, is how we can take a decision on the impact of that relative to a supply chain. And shame on us. Because when the supply chain and design chain meet, we argue and we say, okay, well, we don't have a strong enough voice in the design chain to really influence things. And the reality of it is it's not that we don't have a strong, we don't have enough intellect to bring into that discussion. And we've got to get better at that. We can't ask to be party to that. We can't ask for a chair at the table if we're not ready to bring some factual information and some and some strong basis for why a different scenario should be chosen. So we make mistakes. We introduce the technology too early, and we suffer from a supply chain perspective, whether that's single source of supply, excess inventory, etc. So we've got to get better to bring that in- intelligence to the table to deserve our seat in-, in-, in when we're having that stage gate conversation within the design chain.
1: Hey Douglas, you're spot on, and and I would I would characterize you know we we're launching some new software that does this, but it wasn't built. For supply chain, it was built for design with supply chain's inputs. And, and the last element of that is, is this thing, and I, I think, Richard, you brought it up this word partner has to mean something. You know, the intelligence with our customers around their products and where they want to go, and us understanding the broader supply chain and availability and the direction of technology from our suppliers. You know, when when partners start to do those things together, then the information starts to make sense to all of them, and why a smarter decision could be made. Yep. And I would say you can we can build out a tool that can do this. We calculate the the long term risk impact in in dollars, so that you know a business person can can look at this and make a decision whether we're making sense. But the reality is. There's uh, a bit of an arrogance amongst all players in this that prevents them from really culturally hearing what each other is saying and then making a decision until that starts to happen. um, You know, we could be smarter with systems, but we still have the barriers that people just can't talk to each other and better yet can't hear each other and we can't learn. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm still believing I can learn. I, I haven't proven it yet, but I am still in the belief that it can happen. It might be the truck. <laughs>
0: well, just just building on what you're saying, Joe. I mean, one of the things that we're seeing, um, and I find just personally, you know, a, a really interesting opportunity. One of these intersection points is getting the right intelligence, you know, in in the context of this tradeoff analysis, and with the right visibility or intelligence from key partners, whether those are key suppliers distributor or contract manufacturer whatever it is because you need this outside in perspective right because one of the root cause issues we've seen is organizational it's even psychology to some extent where we have these silos of engineering teams that sort of you know often it depends on the organization but they oftentimes are, are you know feel like they've got this mandate to find the you know form fit function meet the design requirements and get it out the door you know what I mean and not they don't feel that ownership over the success or the health of the product over its incomplete life cycle. More mature organizations, obviously, will have a different holistic approach around that, but, but we see a lot of organizations at low levels of maturity. What we found that makes a big difference is when you inject, you know, in the same context, all the parametric, all the life cycle information and data that they're using in a CAD environment or, or a part, you know, part component library, right, which is pretty static stuff, with all this market intelligence about what's actually happening around supply lead times, risk, you know, whatever. And then you get people to, to understand, wait a minute, you know, there, there's, a, there's a balanced trade-off of considerations. And when the engineers feel like they've got intelligence they can trust and they've got recommendations that that make sense, you know, that you bring those two worlds together where you're building products for resiliency or you're building them, you know, with, uh, you know, a more holistic understanding of what drives their, their success over the life cycle. But you know it's that cross-functional collaboration that really is, is important. And I think a lot of organizations have really left their NPI processes behind from a digital innovation perspective because every single customer we talk to is working off of master Excel spreadsheets basically to manage this process. I mean, it's just horrible. What do what you guys see? I think the simple answer to that Richard is if
3: if that conversation happens after a bill of materials established, it's already too late.
0: Yeah. Yeah, design bomb to, to manufacturing bomb. As soon as it's released, it's
3: done. Way, way, way too late. Yeah. So when you think about the information that's necessary to to move that conversation forward, it's a different set of information than we are used to dealing with today.
1: Yeah, right. that, that's exactly right, Douglas. There's the, the pieces that we're trying to gather aren't the ones that we have And they're quite frankly not the ones that talk about today. Because that product isn't launching today. It's really how are you positioning? Like it, it might be easier if the product has a shorter life cycle, because you're only because your problem lasts shorter. But when you're talking about things that have really long life cycles, the conversation has to be started with, not about today, but what is the future? Because I have to keep it alive for 10 years. And then I think, Douglas, you, you hit something. I mean, there's so many big macro things that we're touching on that none of us probably will solve, at least while we're working. But, you know, you think about the incentive structure for people. How come a designer still has a job if he chose technology that's wrong? You know, and, and if I'm the p owner for that, what was my involvement in setting up the future and why wasn't, how's that okay? Part of it is that, you know, as shareholders of companies, we worry most about 90 days. You know, you read the book, Good to Great, and here we are, we're in good right now. We're not great, we're in good, and there's not a huge amount of incentive to make great because we're, look at the economy. You can't buy enough parts. You know, products are, as quick as they're made, they're sold. Yeah, so, you know, it's going to take some dramatic thinking. So, and I would say a private company, a, a, a maniacally focused human who really wants to change this and has a business sense and, and realizes that all these interactions, they're, we're, not, we're not geniuses sitting here pointing them out. They're obvious and they're, they're not new. The rate of change is new. And the fact that we haven't really adjusted what we call supply chain in eight, 10 years to start to focus on some of the new things that Douglas is talking about, uh, it's, it's kind of uh, how do you get investment to do that? You, we're doing so well. Please don't blow my ship up, um, <laughs> which is a terrible answer.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's really hard to make that change happen in a supply-constrained environment. On the flip side, the call to action has made, you know, issues around resiliency, you know, and, and, and agility, let's say, you know, it's shined a massive spotlight, right, on, on what's happened. I mean, one of the things that we've seen is, you know, innovation-minded procurement and sourcing leaders are getting a strategic seat at the table that they might not have had with supply chain finance and commercial leaders because it's been a shared, you know, all hands on deck, you know, war room environment for some companies in certain industries, right? But then the longer term, you know, implications, I think at an industry level for for regulated and and med tech and healthcare and then automotive are really interesting to understand kind of, you know, more strategically over time, how things could unfold. One of the things I wanted to kind of just drill down on in, in global automotive a little bit more particularly was you know, as Joe, as you've said, you know, the car is becoming, uh, you know, a mobile tech device, right? And and we're seeing, you know, the average electronic, you know, value content of a, of a vehicle, you know, increasing substantially. You know, six hundred dollars a semiconductor alone per car, per vehicle, uh, for vehicle and light passenger, um, and truck. But you also see the clock speed changes, right? You know, you've got a five-year platform being, being planned and you've got w- one-year updates, right? You know what I mean? Potentially, or two-year updates at the software or at the device or the mobility service level that's emerging and then that's shifting the landscape of the overall profitability of players in the value chain. Those that are on the electrified tier one supplier side have much higher growth opportunities and much higher profit margin opportunities than though they're in the old, you know, kind of heavy metal side, right? Transmission engine, uh, chassis development, et cetera. And, you know, we're just seeing this, you know, chip shortage, et cetera. It's just sh- shining a spotlight on, on how those, um, you know, players are, in, are impacted. You know, what are the implications that we think, you know, just in time, just in sequence at the OEM level, at the final assembly, and then pushing all that liability and risk to the tier one supplier, you know, is, is a significant issue that's institutionalized in the automotive value chain. But then organizationally you know, how do these organizations need to do things differently to treat their higher clock speed, higher volatility, shorter, you know what I mean? Lead time, uh, you know, key to, key, to, key to value, you know, sort of decisions that they're making around these, these supporting systems, which to your point, drive differentiation in the eyes of the consumer or the buyer, right? You know, if, they, if they're, you know, you might have the best performing engine, but if you don't have the right mobility services, LiDAR, you know, camera, et cetera, whatever it might be that turn around the cockpit, you know, consumers not going to buy into that, that vehicle platform, right? So it's like, you know, it's critical to growth, critical to profitability. What should the automotive industry, what can value chain leaders, you know, kind of do differently, you think strategically to be more successful? Because I think a lot of OEMs are stuck doing things in a very inefficient way. And I think some, the tier ones, very dramatically around how they're organized uh, around this new reality.
1: You know, it's an interesting one because there is some significant changes already happening with the likes of Tesla, but I wouldn't say those are always the best either. Because having Apple be a car company, um, you know, the expectation that they can move at the speed of that when the car is much more complex than, and the consequences are much greater. Yeah. Um, is, is not likely to, to come to fruition um, right away I, I first think that automotive um, and I worked in automotive when I started with the company grew up in Detroit so we we're pretty much automotive when we get born but you know the industry was worse about the comment you made about driving people to bankruptcy um, they are considerably better today in fact Jabel was walking away from automotive at one point because there's no money in it It was high risk for us. Now, automotive is actually changing their game a bit. Um, They've cut a layer out in a lot of cases around design and gone directly to us, Um, but they understand that at the margins we make, we can't carry the liability. No one will play if I got to own your car. Um, So I I think there's a new thought on how to manage the supply chain there. I do believe that, they still, oddly enough, it still feels like, and they're very big companies, change takes time, that supply chain teams are working from that lowest landed cost mentality and creating exposure on profit. And to me, and I spent time at Jabil as a business manager and You know, I don't, I've never really enjoyed the concept of lowest landed costs. I I think it's archaic because um, it forces people to take metrics that are often in conflict with the the key metric, which is revenue and profit. Yeah. You know, so I I think that they still have that dilemma where um, there's, I don't want to, I don't want this to sound offensive, but there's kind of an arrogance that I'm big in the supply Market, I will get what I want. Now, there's other industries like cell phones and, that, and printers and things like that 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 all have that. And quite frankly, they're right. There is a hierarchy to leverage, but you can't win the game um, if your if your expectation of managing risk is I'm big and strong. The answer to the game is math. You know, it is the calculation, the tipping point between. Your insurance policy of managing risk and the profit you get from from what what investments you make, and you know I think the way that you make that work better is you go to industries that don't make as much money and ask them how they you know because for us shutting down, you know there, we have no money to, yeah. to to afford to be shut wow. down for minutes. Inventory piling up for us at a point and a quarter uh, a month. Um, and making 5%, I, I'm, I'm in a bad shape really quick. And certainly they think that way too, but for me, it's, it's disastrous. So we look at how do we, what's the return for the investment we make? And by the way, the time frame of which it takes place is really the equation, um, and every industry plays different. How I solve healthcare will not be the same way that I solve automotive, which is not the same way that my partner solves Apple mm-hmm. because their leverage and the time frame of which things uh, transpire is different. For me to win in healthcare in a tight market like this, I better have started two or three years ago, positioning inventory, which yeah. we have. Yeah. And because we know if I go and argue with Apple for parts, Apple wins, <laughs> you know, so th- these things, have to be put in place. Technology, same thing. You know, we we got to think about what technology we're using and who else will be playing in that market. How exposed I am? I um, sometimes I want to be in the pile of money. The same because it's easy to flip me ten thousand pieces. Mm-hmm. But you know, if I'm caught in a technology that nobody else is making today. Uh, nobody's going to make it. So yeah, yeah. It, it, it's, it's OEMs, you know, the outside in, I think it was Douglas, you said outside, in. it has to be, it's this thing of partnership. To assume I have all the answers myself. I mean, yeah, I think I have a great portion of the answer. I want to share it. But I don't want to share it with people that won't listen and do anything. I think uh, somebody said, we're going to advance the supply chain. I think Douglas, you were making the point of we've got a grow and change how we do business. And I started thinking, um, how many times have I heard that? As soon as the problem goes away, we have very short memories. You know, so the question is, what incents companies to change? And I think it starts with um, stop talking about cost and start talking about profit and revenue and risk. You know, so many times we meet with supplier customers and, and they say, um, yeah, we have a lowest landed cost model. And yeah, we do too. And I feel like, you know, the next sentence almost always for me is it's, it's really not the right way to look at this. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you think about the honesty that has to happen between partners, you know, what we used to find is we would request certain things of supply base and, depending on who was making money in that equation, decided if they really put in place what was supposed to be put in place.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, so this visibility that fits into resiliency of where the supply chain is, what pieces of information we share. Um, we have 20,000 plus suppliers. We can't be partners with all, but some of these we have to be. Mm-hmm. And partner can't mean I just sent you a forecast You know, there are things that we're having issues on today where I wonder, how come that question of, does this match your forecast come up? It can't. I mean, the reality is that conversation should be happening every week. Yeah. You know, and I I think there's some significant changes in incentive, in the view of what a partner means, in how we, what pieces of data we use and how we get them. you know, we can't be fashionistas around technology, but we have to incorporate predictive analytics yeah. into what we do in the future. And this kind of topic that we have today, I know Douglas very well, and I'm certain we could spend five or six hours and, and still not be bored talking about it because there's, there's so much more around this that deserves airtime and discussion and the fact that I have a lot of um, a lot of uh, respect for all the people on this, it's still too many, too few voices. Yeah. To yeah. to get to the right answers, where's the economists? Where yeah. are the investment bankers? You know, you know, what's their view on how they look at this?
0: No, those are great points. I I mean, just to build on that, you know, there's. Um, there's a shift in, in in who's joining the conversation and then what is the lens, the intelligence by which we're looking at the trade off decisions. Uh, you know, and then there's a level of, you know, shift in 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 business practice. What I mean by that is in automotive, you've got you know, fabricated metal, you know, for just in sequence, you know, uh, operations, it's, that's super well uh, mature, right? Even though there may be raw material volatility or especially metal volatility that is highly impacted, for example, going back to retaliatory tariffs, you know what I mean? That had a massive impact, but really much harder for a lot of the automotive OEMs and tier ones is to take that same business process and organizational structure and cost down mentality and apply it to, much faster clock speed, you know, higher lead time uh, commits, you know, that are impacting right now production shortages and shortfalls, you know, the question is, how does this new crisis shift behavior? And I think one observation is that, you know, w- just, just synthesizing some of the things we've, we've talked about, you know, leveraging partners is critically important around this, that have the expertise, if it's not in-house, right, to manage some of that uh, forward-looking commitments, uh, not just pushing the liability to them, right? but getting new forms of insight. There's definitely a new form of intelligence uh, around you know, what's happening across the, the global high-tech value chain, I think is important. As you talked about, Joe, it's not you know, a supply chain, Douglas, it's not linear. We're actually seeing right now unfold before our eyes you know, suppliers doing capacity allocation across industries, right? It's, it's consumer electronics versus automotive versus med tech versus whatever. And, and that's happening in multiple, uh, you know, commodity groups and key suppliers. And how do you get ahead of that? And because to your point, when we've been in, you know, con- supply constrained environments before, is it first come first serve or is it a, uh, you know, is a, uh, you know, commit allocation model? Uh, with a minimum level of commit that actually gets honored for downstream programs, you know, that, that, that is playing out, that ripple effect is playing out in real time right now. I mean, David, what do you, what are you seeing, you know, from an advocate perspective around, around this? And, and do you have any new recommendations for leaders, you know, a new approach, new mindset that we need to be advocating?
2: You know, uh, and I picked this phrase up somewhere in the past few months, but you know, I, I have seen some of this shift starting to occur and, and it's this, the the phrase I picked up is, you know, just in time is is moving to just in case, right? Right. And and although it, it's in very varying degrees of you know the math associated with it or the data associated with it. We we on one spectrum, we we have um, customers who realize you know they need just in case. Now they're putting their finger in the air and saying, that looks like 90 days, right? And but, but the difference is, and, and something Joe's, you know, hit on throughout the discussion is, you know, they've come to this realization that they need to account for that in their total landed cost. And, and that's taking all kinds of different, you know, shapes and forms. So some of it is just like I said, finger in the air, it feels like 90 days. To the, the part that is more intriguing to me and it, it is really underpinning this, is is really really utilizing the data, right? and. You know, we're, we're involved in several of these um, uh, implementations where, you know, the data is the key. And, and I'd say there's not enough people realizing that the data is the key. I think, you know, I'm probably even guilty of in the past couple of years of, of stating, uh, you know, contracts are the longest pole in the tent for any of these things. That is not the case now. If you're really gonna run an efficient supply chain and, and take advantage of all of these nodes and elements, you, you have to start with the data. And build the supply chain based on that, and and you know we're seeing we're seeing um, um, that occur, and and then that the data then leads to things you know around centralizing inventory or decentralizing inventory, but it all goes back to you know the point about well, what you, what are you trying to accomplish in your resilience because really resilience is a result. Right. And and then everything that leads up to that is, is the actions you take to accommodate whatever that resilience, you know, metric you're trying to hit. And and so we are seeing more and more people or more and more customers take that to heart. And again, some in in, in a very simplistic manner, which is throwing a blob of inventory on it just in case, to the other side of it saying, I'm gonna bring in all of my contract manufacturers, I'm gonna bring in all of my suppliers into a data pool and, and between the two of us, we're gonna sort out you know, what needs to go where and, mm-hmm. and be intelligent and thoughtful about it. Uh, I, I think both depending on their, their capabilities and thought processes are directionally correct and different levels of maturity, but I'm seeing that out there. It is, it's occurring as we're out, you know, talking to customers and building, you know, the supply chain and to your point, Joe, it's not supply chain today. I mean, we're talking about the supply chain now in 2022. Excellent. Douglas, what would you
0: add to that? I mean, we've got the question on, you know, you know, bringing the right partners together, getting the right data and intelligence to make, you know, new informed decisions, you know, having, you know, some level of clarity around a goal of what does resiliency mean? You know, Dave, to your point, just in case, you know, you you know, how sophisticated maybe are we thinking about that across multiple inventory buffers or one or, you know, how, you know, there's obviously different, you know, develop uh, different ranges of of sophistication, let's say that that companies can operationalize around that. But I'm curious of your view on, on the, the leadership mindset or new forms of decision-making that are now emerging. Are, are you seeing the, the most mature organizations or the best leaders out there uh, you know, shift in, in, their, in, in the way that decisions are being made, uh, you know, cross-functionally, let's say, or the way they're approaching these challenges in 2021? Yeah, it's, <laughs> I would say, and, and you,
3: the, the guys have hit on a number of these trends, but I think if I were to sum it up, I'd say two things. Analytics is absolutely one. Um, so to your point, Richard, we're not competing for an, a, a strained allocation against our competitors, we're competing across industries. Yeah. So if I'm automotive, I'm gonna lose to MedTech because they can afford to pay more, right? So that understanding of where new technologies that are tied to fundamental design characteristics and elements are going to get clobbered with allocated supply um, through a less traditional competitive demand stream, we need to know that, right? Um, and, and that's gotta influence us. So that, that whole understanding of the sourcing and the analytics pieces in those insights are, are critical and we don't have them. Our, our insights are often limited by our industry. Yeah. Um, and this is broadening that. So so that's absolutely one of them. And the second one I would say is investment um, and our view on investments. So. I, I might have to verticalize my business to assure supply. And we're seeing evidence of this in some instances, right? So um, so it goes back to that horrible word of partnership. It goes back to that, but partnership is gonna, it's not like we just wanna be friends and we wanna sit down and solve the world challenges together. We're gonna have to co-invest to assure yeah. supply. We're gonna have to, we're gonna have to think about differentiated business models that allows us both to survive. When, you know, wh- when the unpredictable happens. So I think that is driving a different level of decision making at, at, at really the boardroom level to say, I'm gonna have to, you know, m- maybe I didn't wanna go there, but I may have to go there. I may have to think about a different way in which my partnership may mean a different way of thinking about how I invest, how we grow our business together, how we share risk, how we share failure, um and and so thinking about that investment strategy so i would say those two things are really are are building momentum right the the cross-industry understanding of the influence of potential supply constraints and the ability to run scenarios on those constraints very quickly and that broadened view across industry and also our investment strategies
0: excellent well gentlemen i'm going to uh conclude kind of a broad panel discussion right now at this time and, and it's been uh, you know, we've covered a lot of ground, but just in quick summary, I think what we've, you know, we've walked through is some, some really significant shifts in key commodity group areas that are moving to supply constraints, driven by a, a dra- dramatic shift in demand mix, and then having specific implications in regulated industries, healthcare, automotive, uh, 5G build out, you know, et cetera, all now competing for the same, you know, key forms of supply and all of this has meant that there's a, an opportunity, but significant risk associated with what supply chain leaders, you know, product operations, design teams, finance teams need to rethink the way they're working through these trade offs and rethink an ecosystem wide approach to getting the right intelligence risk sharing, uh, you know, and thinking about the long term, not just lowest cost in the 90 day cycle, you know, and then we'll, we'll make it up, you know, uh, later. Right. Which is this execution mindset, which, you know, is needed to go hand in hand with a more strategic, um, you know, risk oriented or resiliency oriented uh, mindset that those are really the keys to success, uh, you know, for, for organizations and for leaders in 2021. So we're going to pause here and take a few questions from the, the um, uh, from the, you know, from those who joined us today and then uh, try to address
2: in it, uh, some of those questions as we go through Q&A.